0: From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Peter Biscuit is my guest. His book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, How the Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll Generation Saved Hollywood, is the indispensable history of the new Hollywood of the late 1960s and 70s revolution in filmmaking. Uh, He's written a slew of excellent books and essays and articles, and at one time was the editor of Premier Magazine. His new book is Pandora's Box, How Guts, Guile, and Greed Upended TV. Peter Biskin, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Yeah, I I talk to people and they say to me, this probably happens to you, whenever you sit down at dinner or lunch, somebody says, are you watching blah, blah, blah? And they name a show that you've never heard of. And I say, no. And they say, you haven't been watching blah, blah, blah. It's so great. It it doesn't really get going until season five, but it really, (laughs) and then I think, oh no. But I mean, there. and I was just looking at the New York Times, uh, Arts and Leisure, they had like the best of 2023. And I looked at all the TV series and like, I haven't seen any of them, and I've only heard of a couple of them. (laughs) There's a lot of TV on now. Yeah,
1: I know. There's too much to watch, uh, or too little, one or the other. It goes from famine to whatever and back again.
0: Well, uh, Raging Bulls was about how the uh, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls book was about how the studios collapsed to make room for the new Hollywood and here you have the story really of the collapse of the hold of the networks and so did you see a similar story in in this book
1: yeah i mean what what happened in the um 70s was um uh that the the um the studios just kind of, the 60s was sort of a dry spell for the studios uh or at least the early 60s were and by the by the last third of the 60s you started to get Films like Bonnie and Clyde, and uh, a whole new a whole new generation appearing, uh, making movies, and breaking all the rules that um, that had guided essentially guided movie making throughout the fifties and even before. And the same thing happened, um, you know, when HBO broke with the networks in the um, in the eighties uh, or nineties. Uh, uh, the networks were uh, subscribe to a sponsor-based uh, business model. Uh, that's where their money came from, and the sponsors were not eager to have their products, their refrigerators, their cars, their whatever, their drugs, appear next to scenes of excessive sex violence and controversy. Uh, consequently, they sort of imposed a, I guess you'd call it a sort of 50s puritanical morality on the networks. So each network had a division called standards and practices, which essentially pr- practiced self-censorship and police themselves. So that um, it got to the point where even married couples were not allowed to sleep in the same bed, but had to sleep in twin beds adjacent to each other. So um, uh, HBO changed all that by uh, junking the um, sponsored model and using a subscription model. And since subscribers presumably invited HBO into their own homes of their own free will. And because the uh, uh, hardware that uh, sent cable signals all over the country was privately owned, the federal communications commission didn't have uh, jurisdiction over it. So HBO was free to do as it wished and it exploited sex violence to controversy to the nth degree and yes. so
0: all of their shows were about i'm sorry all of their shows were about sex when they first started making shows right
1: i'm sorry say that again
0: all of their shows were about sex when they first oh, yeah started well mostly shows. i mean a lot of them <laughs>
1: yeah they had taxi cab confessions or whatever yeah. <laughs> um they had documentaries about sex they had uh you know uh i mean shows like Ah, uh, and they did stuff that you know networks in a million years couldn't do like shows like oz and and of course the sopranos
0: well you know in your book uh easy writers raging bulls you tell a story that was i guess about 20 years old when you told it but now you're telling a story i mean you have stuff in your new book pandora's box peter biskin you have stuff about what's going to happen in 2024 i mean you're right up it's reporting as well as retrospective uh look
1: well, yeah, I mean, I try to be as up to date as possible. Um, you know, so I have a section on Masters of the Air, for example, a few paragraphs, which hasn't come out yet. It's a uh, it's an Apple Apple Plus show, uh, the third installment of the you know Band of Brothers, The Pacific. The first two were on uh, HBO, and uh, and the third one ended up on Apple because uh, HBO got purchased by at that point by AT and T of all corporations. They didn't want to pay for it. And Apple has more money than God. And so for Apple, it was just, you know, like going to the store and buying a bunch of bananas. So uh, anyway, uh, and it was harder to be up to date because, you know, one of the things about Easy Rider's Raging Bulls was that um, it was several decades uh, ago. And people were more relaxed about talking about drugs, sex and rock and roll than they would have been. if the book had been contemporary and that caused me a, a couple of issues, you know, problems with, um, with uh, Pandora's box, because it things were too content. It was too contemporary. And a lot of people were unwilling to talk.
0: Well, uh, when you wrote the new Hollywood book, <clears throat> he's writer's raging bulls. The new Hollywood was over. Do you feel that peak TV is over now?
1: Well, that's a good question because when i started the book the whole idea was that it was supposed to be a tribute or a celebration of um this uh peak so-called peak tv this new era of peak, TV, peak tv that we were lucky to live through but the book took about three years to write and while i was writing it things started to change and um in many many different ways but i guess the 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 best way of describing it is' in, you know as in terms of an overview is that streaming, which took uh t v by storm, turned out to be less profitable than people thought it was going to be
0: well um let's talk about the the movies for a minute um you do talk about movies quite a bit, and I think the the line between movies and television when you or when we looked back at our period in the nineteen sixties, for instance. You know, there was definite line between movies and television. Movies were one thing, and television was a completely different thing. And you didn't see stars crossing over. You sometimes saw stars that began on television, like, say, Clint Eastwood, going to the movies. But they didn't come back to TV. But uh, now you there really isn't a big line between television and the movies. And I think that you're implying that the Marvel movies or the superhero movies are basically a TV series that appears on the big screen.
1: Well, I mean, um, for one thing, uh, let's see, let's, I mean, that's a kind of uh, complicated question. I mean, for one thing, uh, uh, TV sort of supplanted movies in a way in terms of prestige, aesthetic prestige. I mean, you, you know, in the sixties, uh, there was such a thing as the auteur theory, which elevated movies to the uh, status of fine art in a way. And, um, Uh, But over the over the uh, decades, uh, as you say, movies became a kind of plaything for superheroes. I mean, the superhero movies became a monoculture of superhero movies and deteriorated, you know, and and like people like Scorsese, who came of age in the 60s and 70s, compared them to, uh, you know, uh, 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 fun parks or, um, you know, uh, I mean that didn't didn't even consider them doesn't even consider them movies. Um but and what happened with streaming was that for a variety of reasons, it attracted a lot of talent because uh it allowed allowed creatives a lot more space, you know, it attracted writers because it because story arcs which used to be confined to one episode. I mean, the in the old days of um, network TV. Uh, I think the rule of thumb was that even a fan of a show would only watch one out of four episodes. So each episode had to be self-contained, otherwise they couldn't follow the story. Once streaming started, and especially Netflix with its binging, when you dropped a whole season or at least two episodes, three episodes at once, you could have story arcs that that, uh, uh, that covered uh, several episodes, if not a whole season. And that gave writers a lot more leeway. So writers started flocking to TV. And once the best writers came, it started attracting actors and directors and other talent. So it was kind of a, you know, each thing sort of brick built on another, you know, on another brick.
0: Well, you're not shy about expressing your opinions. <laughs> so do you think the Marvel movies are cinema? Do you Are you with um, Martin Scorsese and?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, I think he was exaggerating a little bit I mean, for effect. I mean, I think essentially they've become that, especially now they've deteriorated. They're starting to deteriorate and they're not making as so much money. I think they kind of run, run through their, you know, their shelf life. But, uh, you know, with any genre, there are good ones and bad ones. I mean, almost any genre. And the early Marvel movies, Iron Man movies, Spider Man movies, were quite good. I mean, you know, especially at that point, they were novel. But over the years, you know that you know they just started sequel after sequel after sequel, and um, uh, and they built and they're all re- they're all related to each other. So you have to, you know. You have to do a certain amount of research to understand what's going on in them, and, who, and that's asking a lot for viewers. So, um, uh, I forget the
0: question. I forget <laughs> the, sorry, yeah. but are, are those movies cinema or not?
1: Well, yeah, yes, and no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, one of the to me, one of the beauties of watching a James Bond movie, not including the recent ones, but of the earlier James Bond movies, is that you could watch them. And they would almost instantly go out of your head so that you could watch them again in a couple of years and not remember anything about them. Um, and the fact that now they are sort of serialized, the last five anyway. I mean, the, the the last one wouldn't have made any sense if you hadn't watched the four that went before it.
1: I know. Well, it's, it was crazy, for I think, for Marvel to do that. I mean, you had to practically to get a PhD in Marvel studies to understand you know uh x x y and z and the multiverse you know or the multiverse of this and multiverse of that as i said you know i mean part of the problem was that these marvel heroes were, were very uh you know were intellectual property themselves you know you built you spent millions and millions of dollars establishing a marvel hero you didn't want to kill them off and uh so you, and you don't now i mean the uh if a, if a Marvel hero dies in one universe, he pops up in another, which I guess mm-hmm. is the utility of multiverses, but it gets to be ridiculous after a while. And it it also bears on the question of how much are, are these filmmakers and these companies willing to take risks, which, which is a whole nother issue.
0: Right. I mean, in the golden age of Hollywood, they didn't take any risks, but they didn't have to because the they had their block booking and everybody went to the movies because there was nothing else. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, exactly. But now there's so many other choices. I mean, the, the, I was thinking about the the whole peak TV thing. Um, when I'm sure you remember the last episode of the fugitive or the last episode of mash or roots, uh, 75 million people watched roots or something like that. Um, that's never going to happen again. There's not going to be any television show that everybody watches and that everybody can talk about.
1: Well, yeah, because there's just so many that it it sort of fractures, fractures the viewing experience. But um, on the other hand, every once in a while, you have something like Game of Thrones, which, you know, it used to be, you know, the the rule of thumb, you know, the the phrase uh, water cooler conversations, you know, when when, um, television shows, you know, series were eked out, dropped out, drip, 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 one at a time, once a week or once every two weeks or whatever. Um, But, uh, and that's pretty much, you know, the streaming pretty much ended that. But as I said, occasionally you have um, a show like Game of Thrones, which um, becomes a national conversation and, you know, essentially destroying the whole idea of water cooler conversations, especially with binge viewing when, when you release so many at once.
0: You talk a little bit in your book about the writers' strike. You don't mention the actor strike, but I guess you know that happened a little bit after you went to press, maybe. But I, I wanted to ask you about one of their big concerns, which is artificial intelligence. And let, let me ask you this: in nineteen twenty-six, there was five thousand members of the uh, theater musicians' union who played music for silent movies and then in 1929 there were like 500 members of that union and in 1931 that union went away um is it a similar thing that is technology is coming like sound came and it was a catastrophe for a lot of people and but it came and it happened is that kind of what the situation is with artificial
1: intelligence Well, because of the strikes they, they got some protection you know uh i mean ai can you know uh can say could save um, the uh, pro- you know producers a, t- a ton of money by um, you know replicating not only uh, extras faces of extras um, but also actors and it can even bring back actors who have died but well, they already have de aging you know like Harrison Ford in that uh, uh, in the end. Indiana Jones update, but they could, they could bring back Humphrey Bogart and Marilyn Monroe and and put them in a new movie, and I'm sure that's going to happen at one point. But, um, you know, the actors wanted some insurance that um, they would get a, a piece of that pie, and I think they've got some of it anyway. Um, you know, it's not c- quite clear where that's going to go yet.
0: Well, um, I don't think I would like to see that. I don't want to see Humphrey Bogart
1: you don't want to see Humphrey Bogart? And I mean, I want, I want to see it.
0: Humphrey Bogart, but I, there's a bunch of Humphrey Bogart movies that I can watch. I don't want to see a new one um, because it wouldn't really be Humphrey Bogart. It would be something else. Um, I think that... You, you think you don't want to see it, but, you know, give it a... Sh- you know,
1: who knows what they can do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Would you like to see it? Would you like to see a movie starring Humphrey Bogart and James No, D? I
1: agree with you. I wouldn't, but, um, <laughs> but I'm you know, I'm wondering about it you know i curious about it what they could do how would it look and how authentic it would feel and you know um uh you're probably right i mean it probably you know, probably nobody would go and maybe they wouldn't even try it but you never know
0: i think it was herbert long or some no it was uh no uh who's the guy that was in all the hammer films uh he was in the star wars movie long after he was dead <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: yeah, I, I don't, I don't know who you mean either. But yeah, but you're
0: uh, worth it. <laughs> yeah, and he's dead, but he's in that movie, and he has dialogue, and he's in it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, stranger things have happened. <laughs> I, I,
0: I hope his, I hope his heirs got paid for it, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, I blanking on his name, but you know. uh, so, oh, in 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 Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Peter Biskin, you talk about why the studios of the, you know, the Golden Age, MGM and Warner Brothers and so on, why they collapsed, the 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 late 40s uh, Supreme Court consent decree, the coming of television, the blacklist and all those things. What events do you think caused the collapse of CBS, NBC, ABC and Fox?
1: Well, um, HBO, one, one, three letters, you know, uh, ever since HBO, the network numbers have been going down, even cable numbers are going down. I mean, HBO was a cable station, but that was already 20 or 30 years ago when HBO sort of broke into the scene. But, um, uh, it was, you know, I mean, streaming is now where it's at and streaming is still, uh, streaming may not be as profitable as people thought it was going to be, but it's still the dominant, um, uh, mode of of, of uh, uh delivering delivering tv and um as i said the numbers and of, of, of you know network can't keep up i mean streaming offers you the opportunity to pretty much to watch as many shows as you want when you want to watch them on your own terms and um that's devastating for the networks which still had you know it frees you from those network schedules It's devastating for the networks. It's devastating for exhibition, theatrical exhibition as well.
0: Well, of course, the pandemic really, you know, destroyed theatrical exhibition for a couple of years. Um, And when I go to the movies now, which I don't go very often because I'm still uh, wary of going to a crowded theater, um, there's very few, there's a lot fewer people there than there used to be. And the, the theaters themselves only accommodate I mean, there is no theater now that has fifteen hundred seats like you know they used to be. Um, and well, I,
1: I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: And uh, that sort of diminishes the experience of going to the movies.
1: Well I saw I saw Oppenheimer at an IMAX theater. Mm. The first fifteen minutes were devoted to uh, ad, IMAX size ads. The <laughs> second fifteen minutes were devoted to IMAX sized previews of other IMAX films coming to IMAX. And all of them were based around big explosions. So by the time the feature started, I was in a terrible mood. And, and, and I wasn't the only one. The audience kept saying, enough, screaming at the screen, enough, enough, enough.
0: <laughs>
1: and, um, you know, so I I sort of concluded that IMAX, I haven't been to that many IMAX theaters, but does not seem to be the wave of the future, whatever they may think.
0: Maybe Cinerama will come back. <laughs> Cinerama may come back. But City I mean,
1: cinema—anything to build up the theatrical experience again. I mean, it's sort of like the introduction of TV in the fifties. You know, when 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 those Cinerama originated.
0: Yeah, they had to come up with ways to lure people back to the movies, yeah. um, and I don't think they've come up with it yet. Uh, d- did you see the new Scorsese that is on the top list of everybody's?
1: List? I did, and I I wanted to see it on a big screen. And I somehow couldn't manage it. So I watched it on my, um, I watched it stream by Apple and, um, I did see it and it's, it's very good. I thought I, and a lot of people complained that it was too long and it got to be boring, but, and it is long, but I wasn't bored at all. I thought he did a really good job.
0: Hmm. I I think I was a little bored. And I think the first hour was really the tiresome hour and it got going uh, (laughs) a little bit later. Um, I thought one of the things that was interesting about Oppenheimer, which is also quite long, is that although it's long, none of the scenes are very long. All the scenes are like two minutes long.
1: Well, that yeah. Well, it's cut like a it's cut like a movie, but there's too many scenes. <laughs> <laughs> so you, never... I, I was not a big Oppenheimer fan as much as other people were.
0: Mm. You prefer the uh, Scorsese to Oppenheimer?
1: Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, as far as Oppenheimer goes, this is just my opinion. I would have built up the um, Teller character and ended on the H-bomb explosion, which is really what, you know, we have to worry about, not whether Oppenheimer got his uh, security clearance revoked. Uh You could have have had that. And it's also a hard way to end the movie on a very talky sequence when the main character sort of has a nervous breakdown. Um, it's not exactly a, what you call a, cl- uh, a riveting climax
0: where psycho ends with an exposition of a guy t- telling you everything that happened
1: well that's true
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it works pretty well in psycho uh, I, I, although remember a few years ago they did a remake of psycho like shot for shot only it was in oh. color and it had different actors And I don't remember it was anyway. terrible it was really interesting how terrible it was even though it had the same score and everything it was just not good. <laughs>
1: well, I don't know why. I don't understand the impulse to remake those old movies. You know, movies like that—they're they're good. You know, leave
0: them alone. I, I, I agree. Well, I mean, of course, the Hollywood way is especially
1: remakes, remakes, yeah, remakes,
0: remakes. And, and when I saw uh, True Grit, the Coen Brothers version of True Grit, I said, "Well, you know, I like this. I like the Henry Hathaway version better." But uh, why don't they make a story I didn't already know? That would have been fun.
1: Well, you just introduced this another whole other issue, which is you know this um, this uh, ten- tendency to uh, save money by betting on safe bets, you know, making safe bets on remakes, sequels, prequels, and you know, so-called intellectual property, which I touched on earlier when I was talking about the superheroes. I mean, um, you know, J- justified, which was a wonderful show on FX. Um, uh, they sort of semi-brought it back um uh you know recently, and it just wasn't i didn't think it's nearly as good and it was you know uh just leave it alone I would, you know um but but uh there's so much money at stake that um you know people offer. you know these production companies offer safety rather than innovation.
0: Well, you do praise, you know, the, the the great things that people have been enjoying, like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Mad Men and The Americans. Um, but I want to ask you about, you know, one of the first people that you quote in your book is Robin Green. She's wonderful. She's been on my show a couple of times. I really love her. Yeah,
1: she's great. And
0: she was one of the main writers on The Sopranos. And then she and her husband created Blue Bloods for CBS, which is kind of the reverse of The Sopranos, a family of of law lawmakers. Right. And uh I wonder if you've ever watched Blue Bloods and if you think that the networks still have things to offer that are worth watching.
1: I thought Blue Bloods was terminally boring.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So the answer to that question is do the net, do the networks still have things to offer? I'm trying to think if I watch any network shows at all. No. Well of
0: course I, if, you just, them, if, if you don't watch them it's hard to know if they're any good. If you don't watch them it's hard to know if they're any good. But <laughs> That's
1: true, you caught me out. <laughs> well, I mean I watched I think the last network show I consistently watched was The Good Wife. Uh-huh. I loved.
0: That was a good show. Yeah. Well that had some cinematic I remember an episode of The Good Wife where in the opening sequence before the credits, um there's a a whole story told in, you know, in just a minute and a half with excellent editing about um, a man and his little girl and he's raised her and he's proud of her and she's done all these things. And then there's a, a a shooting, a random drive-by shooting that kills her in his kitchen. And then the credits come and then you see him in, now he's in our world of the good wife dealing with the legal ramifications of what happened. And I thought, you know, that's good storytelling when you can tell a story so quickly uh, with good good writing and good cutting. And it seems to me when I go to the movies today that uh, it takes them a long time to get going. Like in, 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 when I watch a Bud Butterker Western, for instance, with Randolph Scott, the credits are playing. By well, the time the credits are over, the story is going already, and it's an hour and 16 minutes, and it's done, and it's great. Uh, whereas I saw a movie called Kidnapped with Halle Berry, and about 35 minutes into the movie, uh, her son or daughter, I can't remember, was kidnapped. Like 35 minutes into a movie called Kidnap. I think they have a hard time getting going. I'm, I'm not sure what that's about.
1: Well, you think you mean you think Scorsese took too long to tell uh, Killers of the Flower Moon? Three and a half hours? Not too
0: long for you? What's that? <laughs> no attention span? <laughs> well, you know, that's not true because I can t- name a lot of long movies that are not too long i think a movie should be exactly as long as it needs to be to tell the story i don't think lawrence of arabia is too long or gone with the wind or, or bridge on the river quai or godfather two or although the godfather three is exactly too long from the minute it starts to the minute it ends
1: well yeah i mean it's hard to disagree <laughs> it's hard to disagree with that uh but it's funny that you should pick out, uh, the good wife to, you know, to, to make that, um, to make that analysis because the, um, the people who made the good wife, Michelle and Robert King, were also ones who said, um, and they've worked in all the media, they've worked on cable, network cable and streaming. They also said, uh, my, uh, Robert King said that he felt streaming allowed too much space, you know, to be, um, Uh, the guardrail, there weren't any guardrails so that a lot of the uh, streaming shows went on for too long. I feel it more with streaming than I do with um, movies now. I mean, you know, you often watch, I often watch shows where I feel like, oh god, another episode, this could have been done in uh, seven episodes, not ten, or something like that.
0: Oh, I've had that too, like there's a, uh, um, I I enjoyed Ted Lasso, and I thought season one was great, and then season two started to lag, and then it's also, each episode was longer than they used to be, and there were more episodes. Like, they could have trimmed out a couple of episodes where nothing happened. And
1: From my point, point of view, you could have trimmed Ted Lasso by not showing it at all. It
0: was very popular.
1: It was very popular. Well, I'm not, you know... Um, I
0: know, you're Peter Biscuits. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I had, you know, I just didn't... You know, I have this affection for the anti-hero and Ted Lasso. Somebody... Uh, titled a review of my book, "How Ted Lasso Killed Tony Soprano," and that is a fair, in a way, it's a fair summation of my book. But uh, you know, you know, my my uh, uh, affection is laid with Tony Soprano, not with Ted Lasso. Put it that way.
0: <laughs> the antihero, uh, which was really a coming of the—that's really part of the new Hollywood, isn't it? Or just right, right before, yeah. Right. Well,
1: uh, when you know.
0: um uh, buying
1: Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I got no, off. no,
0: Bonnie and Clyde, sorry. When I
1: was interviewing uh, Graham Yost, who uh, worked on a lot of those shows, including Justified, uh, you know, he had a picture of the Wild uh, a still of the Wild Bunch enlarged behind his desk. And he, was, he said something like, finally, a TV has been allowed, it's anti-heroes. And before it was just movies, you know, and it was a, very liberating for him.
0: Uh, I was recently watching an episode of Ozzie and Harriet, and the title of the show was <laughs> "The title of the show is oh, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet." Was the title of that series? And that's I thought, you know, <laughs> there are not really any adventures that occur. I,
1: could, I know it's
0: aspirational, the adventures.
1: <laughs> if only, <laughs> uh,
0: but you were talking about uh, Wandavision and how that. Uh, show kind of um, embraced the 60s sitcom, at least for the first part of its run.
1: Right. That's a fascinating show. If only the Marvel shows had had been that good, all of them.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess that's a problem too, right? There's so many... Like, even if you're a Marvelite or a Star Wars fan... Uh, how do you keep up? There's no way to keep up with it. There's Star Trek now, I mean, there's like seven Star Trek shows.
1: Well, now there's no reason to keep up, so it makes it easy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Peter Biskind, you and I are not in our 20s anymore, and it's the strangest thing. I don't know how that happened. But uh, do you think that has plays a role in what we like and what is successful?
1: Well, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sure it does. I mean, how could it not? I mean, you bring your life experiences to these shows, you know, these shows sort of subtly interact, you know, when you're watching a Marvel show, you remember a lot of the other Marvel shows you've seen in the past, or, you know, if you're watching a remake, of, you know, the Nth Indiana Jones, you think of the other ones or the Batmans or all these shows that are sequel after sequel after sequel. And, You can't help comparing them to what went before. So, you know, the the older you are, the more you've seen and the more jaded you are.
0: Uh, Also today, I teach film appreciation at Monterey Peninsula College, and it's really hard uh, to get my students to understand how to watch a movie, and especially older films that are in black and white. You know, they they have an aversion to black and white cinematography, even though it's wonderful and their phone is about them and it, it's it has to do with them almost every few seconds whereas the movie doesn't really have anything to do with them and i think that definitely plays a role in how they make movies today that is the tiktok uh phenomenon i mean everything is very short and and it's it's vertical yeah uh, well
1: on the other hand you remember that uh jeffrey katzenberg's experiment with uh I was a 10 minute movies for, uh, for phones
0: flop. Yeah.
1: And so there's a, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a complicated issue. I mean, to some, some degree, I mean, um, it doesn't always work, put it that way.
0: I don't want to watch Lawrence of Arabia on my phone.
1: (laughs) I mean, you know, when AT&T bought, um, HBO, uh, Warner Brothers and HBO, um, you know the head of the head of AT&T's uh, whatever it is, Stevenson wanted to suggest it. Breaking said said Game of Thrones doesn't play very well on phones. Can you cut the episodes down to ten? You know, <laughs> <or>
0: something. <laughs> well, uh, how how do you how do you rate Game of Thrones in the world of your favorite shows?
1: Well, I I actually loved it. I have to say, you know. Um, I thought it was really good. I thought it was, the, I thought the writing was brilliant. I thought the everything, I loved everything about it. What can I say? Well, um, you, of-
0: you raised an interesting issue in your, in your book, Pandora's box, how guts, guile and greed upended TV, Peter Biskin, in which, um, uh, uh, Amelia, what is her name? The actress from game of Thrones. Um, oh. yeah, Amelia Clark. She was, um, saying that there really didn't need to be as much nudity in, sex, and she wanted to not be a part of that part of it.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Game of Thrones is a little bit exploitative and got a lot of criticism for all the nudity and its treatment of women, um, which I think was deserved. Um, But, you know, that wasn't all there was to it.
0: I want to ask you about that um, thing that happens now, because people are so enlightened that everything that they watch that was made before uh, last Tuesday they see things that they find offensive. I mean, I think if you took anything that we uh, have been talking about and showed it to an audience in the 1930s, they would find it very offensive. Whereas the stuff that is in movies in the 1930s that they didn't find offensive, people instantly find offensive today. I think that's kind of interesting. Um, How even shows from not that long ago uh, have uh, stuff in them that people find offensive today uh what do you what are your what is your take on that kind of uh political correctness in film
1: well you know i think uh some of it is a good thing but it can easily go too far so i'll straddle that one (laughs)
0: well uh, do you think that
1: you're not going to get me in trouble
0: that way (laughs) (laughs) well you don't have to worry because no one is listening to my show but um, (laughs) but what about say Gone with the Wind do you think Gone with the Wind is a racist film
1: well I haven't seen Gone with the Wind for so long that uh, probably I'm knowing what I know about you know attitudes in those days probably yes
0: (laughs) okay
1: (laughs) I mean look at you know, I have a whole section on Disney, you know, kind of uh, right, yeah. uh, uh, scraping scraping politically incorrect stuff out of their movies. And now, you know, now with their, um, you know, uh, uh, people of color playing the leads of some of the remakes of their movies, they're getting in trouble because there's such a backlash against that. You know, there's a phrase, go woke, go broke, uh, uh, which has been applied to Disney Uh, and, um, I think that's really too bad because, uh, you know, uh, I mean, there's a lot of intolerance still in America and, um, you know, it's not, hasn't gone away.
0: Well, when the movie In the Heights came out, there was criticism that the people in it who were people of color were all light-skinned people of color and there weren't enough dark-skinned people of color in the movie.
1: Well, I didn't see that movie, but, um, and so I I can't really comment on it, but as I said, generally speaking, um, political correctness can go go too far. Uh, uh, but I'm not suggesting that's an example since I haven't seen it.
0: Okay. What about what, what about Song of the South, which you talk about in in your book? That's a movie that has been erased from the Disney catalog to the degree that. Uh, on the ride at Disneyland, uh, uh, Splash Mountain that had Zippity-Doo-Dah and Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Fox, they've been erased from that ride and that that movie just like is gone. Um, do you, uh, As a historian of film, do you think it would be better to show the film and have a panel discussion or is it better to just shelve it?
1: Well, the trouble is, you. I mean, I think the former would be better, but you can't always do that. I mean, you, you know, if you showed Song of the South in, in a theater, there's no panel discussion. So a bunch of racist stereotypes. So um, I guess I'd have to say that I would shelve it.
0: And Dumbo and...
1: Well, Dumbo, Dumbo is only a couple of scenes, you know. I mean, all the films are different. Dumbo's a great movie, I have. Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> But there are some objectionable scenes, uh, which I cite in my book. And uh, uh, when it was remade, those scenes were gone. You know, so
0: right, right, um, which is appropriate. They sh- you know, I mean, they shouldn't do it now, but yeah, right. Uh, but they did it then, and that's that's what happened. That's the movie. I uh, when you look back on on those seventies movies that you write about so well, in Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Um, do you think those movies are as good as you thought they were in uh, in the '90s when you wrote that book? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I, I do too. Um, <laughs> but but you also said in in if I remember correctly in Easy Riders Raging Bulls that the current cinema, which was the cinema of the 1990s, was terrible and and awful. And of course, now that looks really those movies look a lot better than the movies that are being made now.
1: Well, not the nineties, but the eighties, the eighties was kind of, I felt it sort of dead zone, you know, because the studios took back the power that they had ceded to directors in the, um, in the seventies. So in the eighties, you get, you know, uh, Top Gun, you know, um, which, uh, was remade, you know, a couple of years ago, Still happening, yeah. wild, wild applaud, wild acclaim. So I thought it was pretty, pretty horrible. And, uh, you know, that's when you had the, the the studio executives and the producers became the auteurs Simpson and Bruckheimer. Um, uh, fond as I was for of, of both of them, or uh, an interview, I interviewed Don Simpson a lot um, in those days. Um, nevertheless, um, those a lot of those films were execrable. <laughs> so, you know. We- but the it, it, 90s was the was the era of the explosion of indies, you know, and so that was completely different. And they were harking back to the 70s. They skipped over the 80s in a way in terms of, you know, in terms of uh, the films that influenced them.
0: In the 70s, the movies that won the Academy Awards for Best Picture were and were applauded by critics were also the films that were successful at the box office, whereas today the movies that win academy awards or movies that nobody sees and the movies that are big at the box office don't get nominated for anything
1: well that's changing a little bit i mean what was that mel gibson film um, gladiator on an oscar
0: yeah i think uh braveheart is the one you're thinking
1: Braveheart. yeah yeah i'm confused yeah (laughs) 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 i also dislike but yeah i mean there's always been a controversy about you know um should they should they acknowledge films with big box office more than they do the oscars um i mean i think the oscars are an attempt to you know for people you know for creator, you know for motion members of motion picture academy to show how tasteful they are how good what good taste they have
0: well sounds like you 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 don't regard them very highly
1: well, I've never been a. I, you know, I don't like the. I don't love the sh- shows where they just heap, heap, um, uh, heap a uh, praise on themselves. You know, um, the Golden Globes is another one that's ridiculous. Uh, I'm amazed that it came back. I mean, and people make such a fuss over it. And it's also this mania for ranking. You know, you see these websites where it says every James Bond movie ranked. You know, <laughs> every. Uh, you know. Uh, Disney every Disney movie ranked. I mean, it's ridiculous. Who cares, you know? And the rankings are so subjective anyway. So what? What you know? I I never understood that. Do you? I mean,
0: uh, <laughs> no, I don't understand it. I I really don't. But um, but yet I think I often find myself doing it in my head, like, oh, this is my all time favorite. And this was my. <laughs> <story."> <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at the list, for instance, of. Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, The Americans—I loved all of those shows, and I don't know which one I loved more. But I think I loved Mad Men the most, and I think you loved The Sopranos the most.
1: That's true. I didn't love. I thought Mad Men, as I said in the book, is, is was very uneven. There would be great episodes, and you know, not so great episodes. Very uh, too too frequently, it was too uneven for me. And even at its best, you know, I, for me, I love, I guess of those movies. I like Deadwood best.
0: Mm, Deadwood was wonderful. The
1: and the nastiest. <laughs>
0: that's
1: <laughs> where my taste tends to run, I'm afraid.
0: Yeah, that's all right. I why, that.
1: why that's true, I have no idea. Yeah, probably some flaw in my upbringing.
0: I love Deadwood, but I also loved Gunsmoke. So that was a network <laughs> show. <laughs> I love Gunsmoke. It was a great show, and I still enjoy, you know, dipping into it. Uh, I want to ask you about film acting because in your book uh pandora's box you i don't want to misquote you but i think you said that tom cruise was talent challenged or something along those I lines
1: challenged? i'm sorry
0: talent challenged or uh, yeah. <laughs> but you don't think of him very highly uh, as an actor well he's well, a, star, no. which, a star which is big, a big difference between a star and an actor well, we were talking about Humphrey Bogart earlier. Humphrey Bogart was a star, but also an actor. Well, some,
1: sometimes people can uh, actors can be both, are stars and actors, um, but but not always.
0: But if you look at some of Tom Cruise's films, uh, Magnolia, for instance, is one I can think of, where he really gave himself to a, a good director. I think his performance was was good. Um, I think John Wayne is a good example. I mean, in John Wayne's later films, he was the boss. And although there was a director, I think, you know, Duke just did whatever he wanted to do. But when he was in, in the hands of a great director like Ford, uh, he turned in some marvelous performances. Um, how 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 important is the director in acting?
1: Well, I think if you craft a film... For somebody for somebody like john wayne for use his star power uh and don't make him do stuff that he can't do you know uh break down and cry for example <laughs> um you know i think i think you have a reasonable chance of making a good movie you know i mean it's i mean the director is has to be very canny about and was john, it was a john howard hawks was saying about um i'm going to forget now uh Howard Hawks was putting down some contemporary Western, some reasonably contemporary Western. I don't know. I can't forget it. I can't remember the story. <laughs> uh, but yes, it was, it was too sensitive, or something like that.
0: Well, I, John Wayne, I think, was mad at Gary Cooper you know, for doing High Noon, and because Gary Cooper. Oh yeah,
1: played. yeah. It was it was uh, yeah. It was High Noon. Uh, Howard Hawks said, you know, uh, offered Rio Bravo. Uh, as, instead of High Noon, and Garrett, yeah, and John Wayne said High Noon was uh, first of all was uh, un-American, mm-hmm. and um, and when the um, the writer Carl Foreman was blacklisted, uh, Wayne said I something like I'm happy to carry him every every foot toward to the blacklist or something something like that. Yeah, but John Wayne was an awful person, or at least his political views. I don't know about it whether he fed
0: stray cats or doing a, you know i don't know uh, <laughs> <laughs> well yeah when i remember when i remember when when uh, true grit came out and my mother said oh i don't want to see it i hate it and i said what do you mean what's john Wayne? great?" she goes oh he's a bastard and i don't like him he's a republican and i, <laughs> I thought why would that matter i mean how can't why can't you just see a movie and not care what the person is like off screen um but now I do kind of understand that. Like, I don't particularly want to see Mel Gibson in a movie or, or in a short Schwarzenegger. I like
1: True Grit, and i i just saw um I just saw a uh, a documentary contrasting. Um, it's called It was called High Noon on the Waterfront. It's like fourteen minutes long, and it contrasts the two movies because uh, High Noon is a um, you know it's a parable of. People who def- you know, for people who defied the a few House of American Activities Committee, and refused to name names, whereas on the waterfront, his apology is an apology for naming names and fessing up and so forth. And um, uh, but on the waterfront, is one of my favorite movies. It's just a brilliant movie, brilliant, yeah. brilliant movie. It's a and great. Movie. for all his, you know, the issues with his politics. Was you know was a was a great director, no question about it. I mean, you can't judge movies based just based on their politics. Um,
0: yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, On the Waterfront is a really great movie, and it also makes you root for the the guy who testifies, just as uh, Triumph of the Will makes you root for them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, know I was going to bring that up, but I decided not to. <laughs>
0: I mean, I guess that's what you can do with a great movie. Uh, so, do you think that um, well, Deadwood? Deadwood is like, um, even though it was aborted, it was—it's like a, you know, I don't know how many hours it is. It's like a thirty-five-hour movie, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, Deadwood for me was a I think I think Milch is is you know the most interesting. I mean, despite the fact that you know the Sopranos sort of scale the heights and set the set the uh, uh whatever you know um that whole era and you know and all the, everybody i practically everybody i interviewed went back you know paid tribute took their tipped their hats to the sopranos i think milch was the most gifted writer and certainly the most interesting personality and deadwood i thought and as i said was i i just think uh so so brilliant in many ways and it the fact that they cut it off at the knees was a crime.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree. They did come back with a little movie, but I don't know if that I can't even remember now what happens in that
1: movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they made a feature, uh, but it didn't. You know, it still it didn't it, it, reparations didn't work.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, are you a fan of NYPD Blue?
1: Yeah, and and uh, also of uh, of Hill Street Blues. I mean that little group of uh, homicide life on the streets. That little group of procedurals at the end of, the, of that decade, you know, really paved the way for a lot of the shows of the of the a lot of the HBO shows.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think all three of those shows are really great. Um, homicide was really a wonderful show.
1: Well, Tom Fontana is the link, really. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he, I think, because it came before The Sopranos, it's been to some some extent uh, ignored, but. Oz was an amazing show really i mean just stuff yeah. that nobody else had ever even dreamed of doing
0: it had a great cast and it was beautiful had a great cast yeah uh
1: it brought and it showed off hbo at its best you know and uh uh Albrecht, you know saying you know i don't care if the character is unlikable as long as they're interesting and if you kill and what can't you do you can't kill off what can no network do, uh, show do? Kill off its main character in the first episode. If you want to do it, do it. And Fontana did it. And burned him to death in the first episode. I mean, that just <laughs> yeah. broke every single rule.
0: And yeah. And made it a show.
1: Uh,
0: and, and now that's something that occasionally happens. And I think that's a good thing because you were talking about how, well, you know that nothing bad can happen to Iron Man because, you know, just is like just man. like yeah. nothing bad is going to happen to Tarzan. This isn't the last episode. Right. Um, but you never know now, when you're watching a show, who's going to get killed. Sure. People, people can die off and get killed. Well, except
1: for Ted Lasso.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: if only. Drop a safe
0: That would have made the show less funny. What? That would have made the show less funny if people died in it. I guess that might be true. Yes. <laughs> it's a comedy. <laughs> that would be like, you know, <laughs> Rhoda drives off the cliff or something in the Mary Tyler Moore show. That would definitely that, hit. Bye, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what are you watching now?
1: Well, um, I'm watching uh, Slow Horses, which I think is great on Apple+. Plus.
0: And that's from the BBC originally, or no? No, I don't think so. I think it hmm. was.
1: Uh, I don't think so. And it makes up for a lot of the awful shows that Apple Plus is showing. I mean, it's such <laughs> a great, it's such a great movie. It's such a great series, I should say. And you know, anything by Sally Wainwright. You know, uh, Happy Valley, um, Lessons in Chemistry, NIAID, uh Fellow Travelers on Showtime. Showtime, by the way, I just saw has been you know, as being uh, assimilated by uh, Paramount Plus, the way uh, HBO was swallowed by uh, Discovery, which is too bad. Anyway, um, White Lotus, The um, K-Mutiny.
0: I thought The King mutiny was pretty fantastic.
1: Yeah, it was very good. Yeah. It was very good.
0: Um, There was an actress in that film that i was unfamiliar with her name is monica raymond and i was so startled by her she plays the judge's advocate or the the prosecutor she was good i thought she was so good that i went back and kind of looked at who she is and saw that she was a regular on chicago uh, fire i think it was and then and she has a show that's a cable show called high town which has had a couple of seasons it's quite good she's a good actress but yeah, uh, uh, interesting that two there have been two great TV versions of the Kane Mutiny Court Martial, one by Friedkin his last work, and the other by Altman back yeah. in yeah 90s. two and I watched them back to back. After I watched the Friedkin, I went back and found my DVD of the Altman, and uh, it, really interesting how two completely different approaches to a great
1: yeah
0: a great work by two of our favorite directors.
1: That's correct.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You, you, uh, one of the movies that I remember you praising in Easy Riders Raging Bulls is, uh, The Exorcist, which is now 50 years old and there's been some press about it. And I wonder if The Exorcist holds up as well as some of the other 70s things. And I think, uh, well, you tell me what you think.
1: Well, I don't know because I haven't seen it in a long
0: time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think the shock value of it would be gone.
1: Probably. I don't know if it would, excuse me, I don't know if it would hold up. I mean, I saw it when it came out and it was like, you know, spun your head around, so to speak.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a line around the block uh, at the National Theater in Westwood where it was playing continuously. And I think I went to like a 3 a.m. show because the line was shorter, but it was still around the block. <laughs> right, right. But one of the things about that film is that you've got a little girl, a little, you know, teenager spewing obscenities. Well, I was a middle school teacher for 30 years, and that's pretty much how all middle school students talk now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not so shocking.
1: The enduring enduring influence of The
0: Exorcist. Uh, well Peter Biskin it's been such an uh, honor to talk to you thank you for making time for our show the the book is called Pandora's Box How Guts, Guile, and Greed Upended TV and the author, my guest, the brilliant Peter Biskin thank you so much
1: well thank you again for uh, inviting me it was a real pleasure talking to you mm-hmm.
0: That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program, and we'll come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.